Fictoplasm Podcast, episode 70, Mary Gentle's Rats and Gargoyles. Hi there, how have you been? Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2020 and I'm changing things up a little bit. Not too much, uh, I'm generally keeping the same format, but I've made a couple of tweaks. Um, mainly it's going to be, uh, in the past I do a synopsis and then the themes and the role-playing bit. But what I realised is that the themes and the role-playing bit tended to bleed into one another. So what I'm going to do is have a book portion and then a book commentary stroke role-playing portion. Simplify things a bit. There might be a third part at the end that talks about additional resources. So for this first episode, I'm going to talk about Mary Gentle's Rats and Gargoyles. And I have a love-hate relationship with this book. Um, love because there's an awful lot to recommend it. It's got this this vast city with 36 districts. It's a, it's a fantasy. Um, it's a place where humans serve rats. Uh, the monarch of whom is a rat king, uh, so this eight rats melded together by their tails who are psychically bonded, and they in turn serve the gods incarnate, the, the Deccans. Um, there's a certain amount of anachronism in it with uh, periods in human history that span about 200 years of fashion, um, a, a world that clearly isn't ours, but it references real-world places and occult scholars. That's really interesting. And um, real-world concepts of major and occult philosophy that are woven into a fantasy world. And the last thing is uh, factions like the University of Crime and the Invisible College, you know, fantastic evocative names. Uh, and the former can sharp tarot cards and make the future by manipulating card readings. And the latter communicate by leaving messages on the moon. Pretty awesome stuff. Now, if you read the reviews of Rats and Gargoyles, which, by the way, I think is one of the greatest book titles for anything ever, you'll see that it's a pretty divisive book because the brilliance which I've outlined is balanced by this arcane and confusing plot, or at least that's probably what you'll infer from the reviews. Now, on rereading, I discovered how simplistic the plot actually is, and it's to the point of being barely there. The problem with the book is it's got so many things going on and so many characters and Mary Gentle is extremely heavy-handed with exposition and, and her dialogue is really frustrating to read. Characters interrupt each other, go off on tangents, restate themselves over and over again. Uh, occasionally, they're referred to by more than one name in the same scene. It's maddening. Uh, I, and I felt that over and again, a point that should have been made in a paragraph gets stretched out across several pages. This reminds me of why I've made several abortive attempts over the last few years to reread it, and I usually find dead bookmarks about two-thirds of the way through the book. But still, um, this time I pushed through, and I got a bit more out of it for a couple of reasons. Now, the, the first one is I know a lot more about Elizabethan occult tradition than I used to, and there's a really fun bibliography at the very end of the book, uh, and I was sort of chuffed to find a few books that I actually own, like Francis Yates' Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age. And if you're into that sort of thing, there are some Easter eggs in this book. And I'll talk about that later when I'm doing the book commentary. Now, the second reason is I'm obviously reading with an intent to talk about the book in an RPG podcast. And this time around, it struck me that whilst the plot is OK, the world, especially the world at the end, makes for a really interesting fantasy city. Um, it's got non-standard human races. It's got gods walking the earth. I really think that this book would be both better as a film and better as a role-playing game. Now, one last thing before we get stuck into the actual synopsis. This is the first in a trilogy of books. However, it's not a trilogy in the normal sense of the words. It doesn't cover a, you know, a, a single contiguous timeline with the same characters exactly. The two main characters, the, the White Crow and Balthazar Calcibon, both of the Invisible College I mentioned earlier, appear in the sequels the, the Architecture of Desire and Left to His Own Devices. And these are both totally different times and places. Now, as I understand it, the Architecture of Desire is still fantasy, and this time in an alternate London. Um, but the third book, Left to His Own Devices, is a near-future cyberpunk London. So, continuing the theme of... In Vericonium, we have two characters unfixed in time and space, yet still with the relationship with one another and with the mystical faction they belong to. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that because it has no bearing on the plot of this novel, and I've not read either sequel, but it's something 
you want to bear in mind if this book clicks for you and you want to read more. So, as usual, I'm going to talk about the book first, give a bit of a synopsis and a bit of commentary, and then I'm going to talk about some themes and role-playing stuff along with those themes. Then after that, I might talk about a few extra sources you might want to dive into. Here we go. The book Rats and Gargles takes place in a city that's referred to as the heart of the world. Uh, it's an unnamed city populated by humans, rats, and their divine masters, the 36 Deccans, the 36 gods incarnate of the city who reside in the 36 temples of the Fane. Um, the Fane is literally means temple or shrine, so it's a kind of cathedral, you imagine, particularly with the gargoyles who serve the Deccans. Now, rats are the master race who serve the Deccans, but they're the master mortal race. Uh, humans are their servants and slaves, and there are various examples. A lot of humans are, are left to their own devices, and they, they simply have jobs and they go about their day-to-day -day lives, but clearly some humans are actually indentured to rats and perform slave labour. And humans are forbidden from carrying weapons and using currency, for example. Uh, we don't really see the finer graduation between these different classes. Um, so on the human side, there are menial slaves and there are educated guild members, but a common theme is still that humans are required to build on behalf of their masters, uh, not in their own right. By build, I mean actually build structures. So architecture is a theme of this book. Uh, the rats occupy high office, including priesthood, magi, cadets or, or, or army, I, I think they're synonymous, the cadets are the army, and royalty. Um, and also it's noted that some of the city's 36 districts are rat only, but others are human only, although this isn't explored further. It's not clear who enforces this rule, uh, but it's assumed that the rules come from the Deccans. So, the novel opens with this really spectacular scene where this character called Lucas, who is a prince travelling incognito, makes his way past a street trial of a pig on his way to the University of Crime. Now, th this trial of an animal, I assume, is a reference to the uh, trials on animals that happened, I believe, between the 13th and the 18th century. Um, and then after after that, it was judged that animals had did, didn't have the capacity to tell right from wrong and so couldn't be tried for those sorts of crimes. But it's a, it was being tried for the crime of infanticide. It's a throwaway scene, but it's really, really great. Um, but he then makes his way onto the University of Crime. He, he asks directions for the University of Crime. I mean, it's this fantastic line. It's like, can you direct me to the University of Crime? Who asked that? So he's travelling under an assumed name, pretending not to be who he is. Uh, and at the university, he has a lesson with Reverend Master Candia. Uh, and also, he witnesses the appearance of a gargoyle summoning one of the students away to attend to one of the decans. So the, the description is that suddenly, uh, you know, the, the sky goes black with a beating of wings and everyone can taste copper or blood in their mouth. And uh, that is the sign that the decans servants, the gargoyles, are making an appearance. Uh, because Lucas can't be housed in college, he's sent to lodgings in the 19th district. And this is how he, by chance, runs into a young woman called Zari. Um, her full name's a bit complicated, so I'll just stick to Zari at the moment. And she refers to herself as Zari, because her name's complicated. She's a Catalian woman who is training to be a king's memory. That's someone who can recall everything that is said in a certain uh, certain conversation she goes into a trance and she's there as a uh, you know a truth sayer of and, and uh, to record um, transactions and bargains or whatever now the two of them end up um, you know verbally sparring a bit but they they go on their way because they're both going to the same lodgings and then they bump into a third character called Plesias who is a rat and a priest and Plesias you know demands why they're there and of course, they they have to show deference to rats. But uh, he then learns that uh, because Zari's a king's memory, he says, well, I have a job for you. I want you to come with me to this meeting. So the two of them are suddenly swept up into this plot, not, not really knowing what's going to happen. And they come to a builder's yard. And what is, we find out, is an unprecedented meeting between human stonemasons and rat radicals who want to upset the current status quo. And this is treasonous, quite frankly. Uh, humans are subservient to the rats, who are the political upper class. 
you know, humans are forbidden from, as mentioned before, wearing swords or using currency. So for rats to conspire with humans is remarkable. And the subject of their conspiracy is even weirder and more remarkable, which is they want to remove the incarnate forms of their masters, the 36 decans, who are gods incarnate on this earth. Um, and they want to do it by introducing a metaphysical plague that could infect and kill the soul itself. And the idea is that they would drive these earthly incarnate angel stroke demons back into the astral realm so that they would no longer pollute the earth and and be polluted themselves, as it turns out. At this time, elsewhere in the city, Reverend Master Candia, remember him, uh, and another character called Theodoret, who is also the Bishop of Trees, um, and he's interchangeably referred to as Theodoret and the Bishop of Trees in, a, in um, one passage, which is really annoying because you know, at one point it's, you say, are there two characters or just one? Well, it's actually just one. Um, the pair of them visit in the Fane the Deccan known as the Spagyrus, the Deccan of 10 degrees of noon and midnight. Um, I should mention what Deccans are. Deccans are the... Um, uh, well, as I understand it, it is a uh, each of them. They occupy each of them occupy ten degrees of the three hundred and six degrees of um, of the stars or um, the astrological charts. Uh, I believe they're derived from Babylonian gods, very much favoured by John Dee, Cornelius Agrippa, and other Hermetic scholars. And the Spagyrus, and I think Spagyra is actually a synonym for alchemy. Uh, the Spagyrus is a classical bat-winged devil creature. And when they see him, he's directing his minions in alchemical experiments to find the Philosopher's Stone. There's a brief tangent that discusses what would happen if a divine being were transformed to perfection by the Philosopher's Stone. One theory being that it would be transformed into perfect evil. Um, and the Deccan says, no, 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 I'm already perfect. And it's it's also noted at this time that the uh, the faith of the Bishop of Trees, which is obliquely referred to later as Gaia, so we assume it's some sort of uh, pre-human pagan practice, um, this has been around longer than the Deccans have been incarnate. But anyway, what Candia and the Bishop of the Trees do is betray the human and rat conspiracy that's happening elsewhere, and this leads to a full-scale assault by gargoyles upon the aforementioned meeting. And when the gargoyles come, Lucas, knowing what the warning signs are, escape with his life. Um, Zari and the others, he assumes, are actually killed, and, and the others being including Plessies, a brown rat soldier called Charney, who's another, who's the other principal rat character, and a mason, a human mason called Falk. And he assumes they've all been buried under the collapsed building. So this event drives Lucas later to seek out an occult scholar soldier called the White Crow, formerly known as Valentine of the Invisible College, and she's the central character in the novel. And he wants her to do a tarot card reading to determine if Zari really is dead. Um, and he ends up being infatuated with her and tangled up in her side of the occult plot. But of course, you know, Zari isn't really dead. So what? So during the collapse, uh, we find out that the Mason Falk made use of an escape tunnel, which I think he'd had there just for this purpose. And Zari finds herself together with Plessias, Charney and Falk in the sewers trying to find their way out. Now, before long, then they bump into the second of the conspiracies we're going to talk about, which is the remains of the human imperial dynasty led by a young woman who goes by the moniker The Hyena. And her crew are a bunch of humans training with weapons in secret in underground. They, they, they seem to live pretty brutal lives in the literal underground. And they're ready to just string the whole party up. But Zari's tongue as a king's memory saves them for a while. And, and she then bears witness to the hyena's demands, which are, we want, uh, we want to be emancipated. We want uh, to have the right to hold currency, the right to build for ourselves, the right to bear arms. So they let Zari go with Plessios, and they keep Charney and Falk as hostages. At this point, I should note that the occult happenings in the city above, these, these sort of angel gods sitting in their own temples in the above world, are balanced by equally strange foundations, which, because they're underground, they encounter some of these things. There's this brief mention of ghostly roses that one shouldn't touch. Um, not a lot more is made of this. Um, there's some inference that the... Um, 
that the roses are insubstantial, maybe a, a ghostly remnant of a divine object. And if this is an occult reference, it's one that's that I haven't picked up, unfortunately. Um, but even more spectacularly, when uh, when Zari and Plessiers make their way from the hyena's compound under the city back to the surface, uh, what they see is described in this quote. Look, she breathed. Masonry towers ended above her, hanging their sealed cellars down from the underside of the city into the gulf, blended with brick and with steel girders and structures the shape of building foundations and random jammed together masses of stone and mortar and wood. Further off, raw rock jutted down into the sky, the undersides of hills. Zarbetu Zikigal, that's her full name, uh, strained her vision, searching the vapour. Between the underside of the city and the plain, a waning moon stood flat and white in a blue sky. A second half-globe hung beneath it, the larger and more pale. With the larger moon's curve, Zarbetu Zekigal saw the fingernail pairing of a smaller satellite. She looked down off the slender span of stone. Her stomach wrenched. Six miles below, the plain burned with visible flames, licking orange and yellow fires, half-fire welcoming, until she made out how condors and eagles soared into the depths under the bridge. So, as I said, this scene is witnessed by Zari and Plessis as they make their way back to the surface to deliver the hyena's demands. And since we're talking about that, we should now talk about the third conspiracy, which is that of the political machinations of the rats. We get a glimpse of the rat hierarchy, its various officers, including the cadets, the cardinal generals of its church, which which I assume is the same church as that of the 36 Deccans, um, its lords magi, uh, and the rat king, eight rats fused at the tails and psychically bonded into a single gestalt. Various players appear, including Captain General Desagulier, the head of the Rat Cadets. You know, both Desagulier and Plessiers are making their own political power plays, although there are few pages devoted to the actual politics and pretty much no internal thought process is written down. Um, and this is sort of common throughout the whole novel. There's no internal monologue, so it's really hard to anticipate the Rat's ambitions. Uh, the exception is Plessiers, whose personal ambitions are entangled with the wider magical plot because he's basically using magia, specifically necromancy, as the means to his end, to his psychic plague. Now, as for the other characters, uh, these characters go up and down in political station and coups happen, but it's it's mostly irrelevant to the plot. So... In returning to the surface to deliver the hyena's demands, Plessiers advances his own ambitions and becomes cardinal of his church and later extends his own influence into areas previously previously controlled by his political rivals. So, when Balthazar Kalsaban, the, the Lord Architect, arrives to fabricate siege engines for the palace, he's met by Plessiers and not Desagulias, as he was expecting. Plessiers is a priest, not a general, but here he is involving himself in military oversight. Anyway, um, now Kalsabun's on the scene, we can talk about the fourth and final faction, that of the Invisible College. Kalsabun's mission at the palace is just cover. Really, he's an agent of the Invisible College sent to assist the White Crow, although she's not too thrilled to see him. She's been in the city for some five years after leaving the college and has left these cryptic messages in the moon, which in moonlight on the surface of the moon, not exactly sure, but I assume it's something that can be viewed by other scholar soldiers on the moon. Uh, we learn that the scholar soldiers of the Invisible College never meet in groups of more than two or three, that they're a kind of itinerant magical troubleshooter come spy, uh, and many people outside the Invisible College believe that it's just a legend. And after some back and forth between characters in which Kalsabun rubs Lucas up the wrong way, um, Kalsabun reveals he's been summoned to the Fane to meet the Deccan of the 11th hour, the, the Lady of the Ten Degrees of High Summer, and the White Crow tags along. And here we have some of the most evocative description of a magical space that I've ever read, really. The heart of the maze of the 36th temple opened before her. The White Crow moved forward slowly into the large courtyard. High walls enclosed her. Of small bricks once dark brown and now sun bleached to ochre, the sky empty and sun filled. 
Black dots floated across her vision. One of them landed on her arm, crawling along the fine red hairs. The old English black bee. She raised her arm, blew softly, and the bee flew off. Made extinct in an epidemic, Casabon's hand rested on her shoulder. Master physician. All the ground lay marked in ochre and yellow and brown gravels, a labyrinth of patterns on the earth. She began to walk the knotted pattern. She did not raise her eyes yet to see what lay in the centre of the courtyard. Black roses thrust briars into crevices of the brickwork. The pattern brought her close to one wall, and she reached up on to touch. Black stem, black thorns, black petals, cold as living onyx or jet. The tiny bees swarmed about her. Their noise filled her head. She reached behind without looking, left-handed, and Casaban's hand enclosed hers. A statue loomed in the centre of the courtyard, bees swarming over its crossed front paws. Brown and mortared mix rose up into the leonine shoulders, flanks, haunches, and a tail curved over on one slightly stretched hind leg. Around the shoulders and head, drapework delineated in curved brickwork surrounded the almond-eyed face. The swell of breasts showed above the crossing front paws. The white crows shifted, eyes aching from staring up into the sun. The sphinx towered some sixteen or eighteen feet above her, shaped brickwork smoothly curving, sun-bleached, and crumbling here and there where breeze nested in crevices. She sat down, cross-legged, ignoring Calcibon's expostulation, energy sucked by the heat. You are too early. So a couple of points about the exchange that happens between this Deccan, who's appeared in this shape of a sphinx, to the um, to Calciban and White Crow. First of all, the White Crow walks a pattern to actually get to the centre of the courtyard, it seems. This is, uh, this is reminiscent of Amber, actually. Of course, the whole point about the Amberites is that they walk the pattern to gain their powers. Uh, and I wonder if there's a link there. The second point is there's a bee motif used by the white crow as a means of communication. She actually uses this early on to, uh, she gives one of these bees that settle in her hair to Lucas, who then passes it to Calcibon as a um, as an indication that she is, that Lucas is her agent. Um, but here it's repeated, but there's a reference to Old English bees. And up until now, we've assumed that this is a wholly invented secondary world. But here, our world touches upon this secondary world for the first time. But not for the last. Then there's the, obviously there's the description of the Deccan itself. It's a great big sphinx. Now, whether you're representing a god incarnate or a mythical being, this is a great example of how to do it, you know, how to represent power and depth. Um, the only problem is, at the same time, it's got this, the actual exchange is this annoying conversation full of florid language and, and cryptic rhetoric from the god, talking about prophecies and the wheel of the 36 Deccans being broken by death of a plague at the heart of the world, which is Plessy's master plan, so that's tying in that plot. Um, and really annoyingly, the Deccans saying, oh, there's an appointed hour to act. You know, you are too soon. You have arrived too soon. What, what does that mean? And I'm not a fan of this kind of stalling. It's really annoying in a piece of fiction when some NPC hints at knowing more of what's going on than the protagonist, but, oh, I can't tell you everything. It's infuriating in a role-playing game, of course. It's excusable here because the Deccan is a god, and if they choose to dick around with their mortal agents, well, you know, what can you do, you know? Um, but what happens next is also annoying, but it's also interesting as well. Um, the White Crow and Castleman's time in the Fane seems to be less than an hour as far as they're concerned, but when they get outside, it has moved on by 30 days to high summer and the the feast of misrule so everything has moved on and we've got this big time leap for all of the other characters and so this plot contrivance means our two principles are brought right up to the zero hour so the deccan has said well you, you've arrived too early it's not the hour to act so i'm just going to stop time until it is the time to act and uh and quite justifiably, they complain more than once about how if the Deccan hadn't mucked them about and if they'd had 30 days to prepare, then they might have been more effective and instead their back's up against the wall and they have to be reactive to whatever they find now. Uh, of course, we, we know that if they did have those 30 days, they'd probably just waste them, uh, procrastinate, you know. But anyway, the, the situation that they have to react to is everything's come to a single crisis point Firstly, the hyena is rallying her human cohorts in the streets, 
um, the humans are attempting to erect the Temple of Solomon. One of their main complaints uh, is that they require to build on behalf of the Deccans, and they are insistent that this new creation will be a wholly human endeavour to their specifications. So there's a bit about um, foundation stones and sacred geometry and stuff, not, of, not all of which I understand. And then the second thing that's happening is that the rats in response are bringing these massive machineries of war to bear on the humans. Um, but then suddenly everything kicks off as the black sun rises and the hour of the hour of uh, noon and midnight, that which is governed by the Spagyrus, is uh, is upon us and the sky turns black and the uh, the goggles are suddenly without masters and everything's breaking apart. So that's all quite exciting, but it's all quite confused. And we have this long-running sequence that's you know a good hundred pages long of of just sort of cutting between these different scenes, and it's supposed to feel frenetic. But of course, if it were just about thirty pages, you could probably stand it. But a hundred pages, it stretches one's patience. To be honest. Um, okay. Anyway, moving on. If you remember Master Candy and the Bishop of Trees, who betrayed the human stroke rat conspiracy. Um, I should mention what happened to them. Uh, the bishop ended up with his still-living head on a spike within the fane, whilst Candia was set free to warn the university of what happened. And Candia gets what he deserves from the humans for his part in the betrayal. He gets a good chewing. Uh, and then he finds solace in a bottle until he's found by White Crow and Calcibon to give them a plot, of course. Uh, this plot dump from Candia lures White Crow back into the fane of the Spagyrus, whilst Calcibon manages the chaos above ground. So the other things that are happening at this time, uh, there's a thing called the boat. The boat appears, it carries the souls of the dead to be reborn in the city anew. And these newcomers disembark without shadows. Apparently they they grow their shadows back after some time being mortal again. Uh, amongst the disembarkees are Zari's older sister, who also comes along with her own magical plot dump, becomes a, a character who seemingly has turned up and knows exactly what the plot is going on and exactly what is needed at the right time. Um, apparently her older sister was alive when Zari left her nation she died in order to get onto the boat and then it's all very confusing um, the other person who's on the boat is Balthazar's mother who is little more than a comic relief matriarch and not really worthy of further discussion she appears right at the end to sort of sort of you know, wag her finger at Casabon who says mother you're embarrassing me in front of my friends so that's just ridiculous. I don't really understand why that's done. Um, I wonder if this character turns up in the later sequels, but I could do without it, quite frankly. Um, now, the boat itself being this thing that transports the souls of the dead to have them reborn is is an instrument of deus ex machina uh, to get some of the characters out of a sticky place later. Um, since we're talking about gods walking the earth, deus ex machina is okay, I suppose, but mm, a bit annoying. But now, as I said, we've got three threads. The firstly, we've got the White Crow and Candia inside the Fane, trying to do magical things and talk with the Spagyrus and bargain with them. Secondly, we've got Kalsaman and uh, Falk and others attempting to combat the supernatural and to complete the raising of the Temple of Solomon. And uh, finally, you've got Zari, Chani, the Black Rat, remember her? Uh, and Plessias visiting the Knight Council, who have summoned them because they are annoyed about all the magical goings-on. There's an awful lot of cutting between locations to keep track of, and this is a substantial part of the book, as I mentioned. It's maybe 150 pages. Um, but it still happens in the space of an hour. So dealing with these in the reverse order to tell you what happens... Um, the Night Council are a bunch of 13 snake gods with comedy lisps. It's really annoying. And they summoned representatives of the world above to answer for the magical disruption they felt. And through this passage, we learn that it's necromancy that's disrupting everything, for which Plessius is primarily responsible. This is a bit of a reprise of the earlier scenes where we have a glimpse under the city. And the 13 gods are described in this quote. What are they? says Ari. What they say they are. Pale, calm. Elish Hakuzekigal, that's Zari's sister, spoke to include Plessies. Chthonic idols, not gods except by virtue of human worship, exiled beneath the heart of the world, when the thirty-six took up their incarnations here on our human earth. The most ancient idols never died, only took refuge below. Plessies raised an ironic brow. Their powers? Intact. Intact. 
Tsar Betu Zechigar moved closer to Elish. Heareth and Lithen well. So there's some nonsense there, but it does give a further hint as to the cosmological nature of the city at the heart of the world, and that's a kind of microcosm for all of reality, for human worship and so on. But otherwise, this thread doesn't do much other than point the finger at Plesius for mucking about with necromancy, uh, and he, in turn, comes to a bad end in the end, as, a, as all Machiavellian villains ought to, I suppose. The boat turns up to carry our remaining heroes to the surface, and everyone is reunited in the docks. Yay! The second thread involves Calcibon, Falk, Lucas, and others trying to bring human ingenuity to bear against the magical plague and ruin that's infecting the city. Further evidence that our primary world is bleeding into this one comes in this passage where Lucas conveys a message from Calcibon to humans at the University of Crime. A mathematical analysis is the basis of a sound understanding very true. The dark reverend Master Shamar nodded thoughtfully, resting his chin on his hand, his gaze still on the piled maps. A man of learning, your archmaster. Not to say craft. Lucas lowered his gaze and hastily read on. And to our immediate crisis this. This is Lucas narrating. Dr. Johannes D., his book, writes how the gods through their divine numbering produce orderly and distinct all things. For their numbering, then, was their creating of all things, and their continual numbering of all things is the conservation of them in being. And where and when they shall lack an unit, there and then that particular thing shall be discreated. We're already facing a consensus reality breakdown. Faramon stroked his beard. What would he have us do? Pray to the gods to keep numbering the formulae of our existence? So yes, um, as well as the delicious phrase, consensus reality is breaking down, which is, um, which given the timing of this book around the 1990s was right up there with uh, Mage of the Ascension, uh, we have a direct reference to John Deed's Monas Hieroglyphica, and Calciban is recommending to the humans to break the laws of Mathesis in this quote. Do this, hold fast to the measurements and the proportion of macrocosm and microcosm as they become discreated, as it is the law that spatial, temporal, diurnal things be discreated when they cease to hold them in existence. Break that law, masters, not merely the criminal law, but the laws of nature. Cheat physics, matter, energy and form. Break the laws of mathesis. No hope to counteract the equal and opposite reaction to the use of true necromancy now. No hope but this. It's kind of like they're rebooting reality and restoring it from a backup. This hints at what the University of Crime can actually do, and it makes them possibly the most interesting aspect of the whole book. Whilst the rest of the plot is largely concerned with comparative theology and hermetic magic, the university actually does interesting things with it, uh, such as it uses difference engines to defy the mathematical laws of the universe. And as mentioned earlier, Master Candier, it seems, can cheat at tarot cards, by which I mean he can manipulate the divinations to make them actually prophetic. So, whilst the University of Crime sets about realigning all natural physics with its difference engines, we have this third thread where the White Crow goes into the Fane, heals the Bishop of Trees from the neck down, yes, he gets an entirely new body, uh, and ends up wearing somebody's coat around his loins, I think, uh, and then goes on to confront the Spugiris, who is intent on dying. And this is the cause of the wheel being broken, so the idea is that one god dies, the whole wheel flies apart, everything is discreated. But of course... The Spagyrus and all the Deccans are gods incarnate, and they've learnt mortality from humans. So the Spagyrus fixation on death is is part of the earthly corruption it suffers on Earth. This is uh, this is actually really similar to the situation of the Barley Brothers in the third Viraconium novel, gods incarnate on Earth being subject to earthly corruption. Now, this flying apart of the wheel may or may not have been a disaster. So one theory is that the if this happened, that the 36 discorporate or be discreated, the idea is that they would discorporate and then be replaced by a single invisible and monotheistic god. But you don't really find out whether this would be a good or a bad thing. Uh, at the last minute, Spagyrus is brought out of its funk and, and it even admits that it was an error to consent to die. 
and the Deccans choose to tear down the Thane and to live as gods incarnate amongst humans and rats rather than hide away in their in their secret little cathedrals. Um, and that's pretty much how the novel ends, with this montage of gigantic beings emerging in front of mortals in a sequence of scenes. Also, people kill come back to life, being brought home on the boat, humans and rats are now on an even footing, and all the protagonists meet up for a light-hearted denouement. Oh, and also, um, Kalsabon, who is throughout portrayed as this fat and slovenly glutton, wholly reverses the white crow's opinion of him with a bit of really heartfelt and beautiful poetry that captures her heart, and they then shag or something. So that's the end of the synopsis, and I have to say that pushing through to the end of the book is quite a satisfying experience, but there is this middle which really drags, um, despite the way that it, it should be be fast paced and it's it like with these lots of cuts to different things going on um i guess it's a bit like a michael bay film like that but there's still a lot to recommend it so what i'm going to talk about next is comments and role-playing stuff The first item I'd like to cover is the tendency for the real world to bleed into the secondary world. And in the book there are a few places where our world bleeds into the unknown city. And there's this, this mention of Old English bees, the reference to John Dee and that sort of thing. And without these hints we would assume that this is a wholly invented world. But clearly there's something else going on here. Now I've done a few episodes about secondary worlds existing within primary worlds. Um, here we've got the reverse. It's a secondary world which we don't leave that is somehow adjacent to our own, mainly in this case because it uses real-world occult philosophy. And I'm not sure what to call this in a fictional context, but if we were gaming, this would be metagame. You know, the, the protagonist would be none the wiser, but the players would catch these cues. So it's not quite breaking the fourth wall, which would acknowledge a direct relationship between character and audience. It's more an effect that implies adjacency, as, as in this world we're exploring and the fiction is adjacent to our own. And in doing so, the fantasy world maybe gains a little more verisimilitude in the eyes of the audience. Now, linked to this is anachronism, which seems to get wilder as the novel goes on. Initially, it's just fashions that vary. So you've got things like you know, doublet and hose being worn by the rats, and frock coats being worn by um, by Casabon. You know, that's maybe two centuries of English fashion apart. Um, and the social structure varies between medieval and reformation. One of the sources um, talks about um, early modern France, uh, and, and that is probably where a lot of the, the idea of the rats has come from, these uh, you know, musketeer types with their cardinals and their kings, etc. You also get, um, obviously, anachronistic technology. Uh, you get difference engines, airships, trains, cameras with flashbulbs, and, of course, you get characters with muskets and rapiers. And you can dismiss all of this as just colour. It's not really a theme in its own right. But if you think about it in the context of Bleed, it's kind of more significant. I mean, this could be several time periods bleeding into one space, one sort of infinite city. And of course, we have the Hermetic traditions as a basis for magic, and these in turn were influenced in our world by the likes of the ancient Egyptians, who are represented quite literally by the likes of, uh, I assume, the boat and the night council. Um, I don't know enough about them, but I, I think, I assume that's where it comes from, and certainly the Egyptian influence goes into Agrippa and D and that sort of thing. Uh, so this isn't really just a fancy city, it's this melting pot of earthly cultures and a very literal reading of the occult. Of course, this is still a secondary world, so it doesn't have to have any significance regarding our world. And you could argue that this only really matters if you want your PCs to be able to cross over from their world to ours. But the possibilities there, is, it's, it's almost like a kind of inverted magical realism. It's a wholly magical world with just a hint of something ordinary about it. Moving on to then, the next thing I want to talk about is magic or major. And this city, you know, the heart of the world, is a is a literal representation of real-world hermetic magical principles, which is a great concept. But I also feel in some ways it overlooks the most interesting thing about magical theory. There is no mystery in Rats and Gargoyles. The magic has all been taken at face value and used to construct a magical world with 36 decans and divine architecture and a boat which returns the souls of the dead back to Earth and so on. 
And the reason there's no mystery here is because there's no separation of the mundane and the magical world. Major is a force to be manipulated. It's a technology. In that respect, it's no more mysterious than D&D's spells. And the implementation does make it kind of interesting, the, the manipulation of mathematics to achieve changes in the physical universe. Uh, even better, hacking the universe by cheating at tarot readings. Um, but these methods are, if not universally understood, they're at least sort of commonplace. People get them uh, quite easily. They're easily communicated, I guess that's what I want to say. Um, and of course, if everyone can understand the idea of magic, it's no longer esoteric. It becomes technology, which is fine. Cyberpunk is all about fantastic powers made freely available to everyone. Uh, so the key point is not what you comprehend, but the clever ways you use this toolkit of, you know, magic or cyberware, bioware, superhero powers, that sort of thing. The problem with magic, the thing that the things that make magic interesting to me are not necessarily the game of elements, but mostly about, you know, curiosity and theory and the way that magician comprehends the wider universe. Now, my favourite magic system of all time is probably the one in the third edition of RuneQuest, published by Games Workshop, at least that's my, my version. Uh, it was published in the late 80s, um, not for the spells, you know, superficially the spells are just like D&D, &D, but what makes it special is it has a section on how three different magical traditions answer the bigger questions in life, like what gods are, what magic spells are, and, and that sort of thing. Um, they're called the Shaman's Answers, the Priestess's Answers, and the Sorcerer's Answers. And obviously the magic spells are what you actually use in play, but the underlying philosophy is what gives depth to the character. Uh, now, being of a certain age, I played a lot of World of Darkness, and Mage was an obsession for a while, to be honest. Um, in a lot of cases, Mage is the uh, the absolute worst of both worlds. And in play, the, the freeform magic is very hard to use without completely hand-waving it, which is what we did most of the time. It's really hard, I felt, to make a, an earnest effort of mixing and matching the spheres to make up your own spells, so you're you're back to using the rotes that are actually in the book. So on the practical level, Mage's magic isn't very good, and on a philosophical level, it's not very good either, because it's subjective. There's, there's no real curiosity about how the universe works. It's all about imposing your will on each other, and the person with the biggest dangling lower appendage gets to decide consensus reality. And that's not really mystery, that's brute force. And in some ways, I'm sorry I never really got into Ask Magica, which seemed to be a lot more refined. But I guess, in others, I'm glad I didn't, because Mage might have ruined it. But one thing I did with Mage, though, was um, to treat the spheres as a sort of higher self, analogous to the nine ability scores. So your goal, to be fully awakened and magically rounded, was to have dots in all nine spheres. And if you didn't, then you were basically magically still an infant um you might have a couple of really pumped spheres but you don't have the breadth of experience you're a rounded spiritual entity uh, and that might lead to infantile behavior like if you've got high forces everything seems like uh, the hammer you use is blow stuff up and everything looks like a nail um i really liked uh, by the way vampire's concept of golconda uh, as an end state um, and this wasn't supported in later Vampire. It's kind of, it just seemed to disappear. It became a game about secret societies. And I kind of feel the same disappointment about Mage. Um, these philosophical ideas are not well supported by the game. The point I'm getting to is that being a magician should be about exploring both the shape of the universe and the shape of the magician's soul and knowing both. And this is actually also the thing I find most compelling in magic, the, the concept of macrocosm and microcosm and the idea that the shape of the universe is reflected in individual beings. Um, as I said earlier, it's not really gameable. It's more of an aesthetic choice. But certainly you can weave that colour into the game. Uh, so in the heart of the world, in this city, there are 36 districts and 36 temples of the Fane. And if your magical city has an occult foundation, then these patterns should repeat. There are also allusions to architecture and divine geometry in the book as well. And, and so if you wanted to... You could reproduce this model, um, and the number of 36 could repeat over and over throughout the city on a smaller and smaller scale. So you say the number of 36 is important for the shapes of certain circular windows, or the layout of clusters of houses, 
you know, maybe um, houses are organized in, in circles or maybe they're six by six grids. Um, and maybe the divine number 36 is represented in the hours of the day, or maybe it's represented in celebrations. You know, what, what if there was a festival cake that's supposed to be divided into 36 portions or something? Okay, that, that's a slightly silly example there, but there are lots of ways you could repeat the macrocosmic number on a microcosmic scale. People like playing wizards because they can do magical stuff. Uh, and the thing that separates wizards from not wizards is that the wizards get the significance of these numbers, as well as, of course, being able to do the, the, the fireballs and the charm persons or whatever. They actually, they understand the wider cosmological significance of the world they're in. So let's say that you're fixated on the number 36 and you have it repeating throughout the world. Um, to a magician... It's more than just a repeating pattern. It's something they can manipulate for effect. So maybe it's that each of the 36 numbers can be manipulated to make spell effects mage style, but, but actually maybe a bit more functional than mage style. Or maybe there's a hidden significance to the number 36 that it's the the eighth position of a triangular progression. So for example, so um, eight is an important number. 36 becomes the, the exoteric number and eight is the esoteric number. If you know what I mean. Um, now, I don't know what, if any, bearing this has on things like Enochian magic. I, I don't know anything about that. Um, but to be fair, I'm not actually trying to reproduce an authentic magic system. Um, and I do actually have a copy of Authentic Thaumaturgy by Isaac Bonewitz. Um, he doesn't talk about this either. Um, that was published by Steve Jackson Games. I'll talk about that at the end. Um, anyway, um, I don't want realism, I want verisimilitude. I think a lot of people say that. And the end result of this magic is still the same. It's, you know, D&D &D spell effects. But I kind of like the thought process that magicians go through, the, the sort of the mathematical contortions and the sacrifices they make to, to be part of the foundational world and to set the magical community apart from the, the mundane. This doesn't have to be entirely mathematical. Although, if you're talking about a city, then mathematics does have innate ties to architecture. Um, but it could be about language, for example, you know, what, what people say, what's in common phrases, uh, and then the magical roots of those. Um, at Dragon Meat, uh, I spent the afternoon in the bar playing a game called Dialect, which is how language is born and how it dies in closed-off communities. Uh, and that made me think that one of the things you could write as a backdrop would be a dialect backdrop that focused on magicians using specific language and ritual phrases that then make its way into common language that doesn't necessarily uh, acknowledge the mystical roots. Okay, I've waffled on about magic quite a bit. I want to move on and just talk about factions as the last point. And I think that's something that every GM goes through, is how do you manage all the factions in your political game? That's if you run that sort of game. Or even if you don't, and sort of any factions are interesting. Secret societies, you know, everyone loves a bit of that. So I've been on a video game binge recently uh, as I, I repurposed one of my dad's old workstations. And I've been working through Dishonored and sequels, which are really great. Uh, great level design, gameplay, emergent story, really good. Um, but that's a sort of semi-open world, and as a result, there are a couple of different factions to contend with, which is a fairly standard design. You have a number of interested parties at odds with one another, and then your protagonist can choose one or more sides. Uh, and of course, the thing about factions is that they all have their own agenda, and they don't just wait around for the PCs to interact with them, they, they pursue their own goals. Video games, of course, do the thing of triggering cutscenes when the player encounters them, and so the, the factions tend to wait for decisions from the player at that point in the game, and that makes a lot of sense because the player is the single point of view character and what matters is their decisions. But this is, you know, a, a necessary part of video game designs, uh, and the factions and plot tend to wait around for the player to give them a nudge. And in role-playing games... The factions might do this, or they might just go about their business regardless of whether the pieces get involved. That's kind of two ends of a spectrum. Uh, one end, you have the, the carefully plotted out and triggered scenes where your NPCs only take action when the pieces are there to observe them. And the other end, you have a continual progression of time, and if the pieces do nothing, then the NPCs will just play their moves out. 
even if there's no one there to see them do it. I've played with some GMs who refuse to change the pace of time and allow their players to, to blunder about all over the place and miss the plot entirely. You, you may or may not think that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not really offering opinion either way, but realistically, I think a lot of GMs, myself included, occupy a sort of middle ground between those two extremes, where if you have two different bodies enacting their plans, you give the players plenty of opportunities to interact with them, to pick up on some clues, and then the party either gets involved or it doesn't. And you give the party feedback in the form of seeing what their action or inaction does to the social environment. And you use this feedback to refocus the party's attention if they disappeared away on a tangent. It's an iterative process. But this could be a pretty exhausting exercise for the GM if you're keeping track of more than one political body. So, and, and a prime example of where this is really tricky and it happens a lot is urban fantasy horror, which which includes World of Darkness, Call of Cthulhu, um, others with you know cult, I guess, places where there's a lot of weird conspiracies knocking about. So one of my favourite examples of that genre, uh, which is Sign Nominate Silent Allegiance, has some really neat methods for managing the behaviour of cults by expressing their, their power, their strongholds and assets, and their overall goals. Now obviously that's slanted towards antagonist conspiracies, they, they are referred to as cults, not factions. Um, it might therefore fare less well in a political environment, but it's it's a good starting point. And here's how it works. Your your cults have three attributes. Um, muscle, sorcery, and influence, I believe. Um, occasionally you make checks against these for whatever reason. Then power, they have power, and that's the actual currency they have to make things happen. You know, like willing minions and, and secrets and stuff. Then they have assets, which are specific resources... Um, and in the cult's turn, various assets can attack the assets of other cults. And you, you purchase assets with power, so you turn your willing minions into a monster or a crack assassination squad or whatever. And I think um, strongholds are a specific kind of asset and a concentration of power. And, and then finally, you have the goals of the cult. And this is all fine for a static setup. Uh, but then it needs to work dynamically in play, and Silent Legions achieves this by having cult turns, which are supposedly once per month or between adventures, and they go in this sequence. First, you, you, the cult gathers power from strongholds it controls, so it actually says, "Well, how, how many more minions do I have? How many more minions do I have to realise my goals?" Then it spends those minions to do asset up upkeep. Uh, develop more assets, reinforce strongholds, that sort of things. And then it gets to spend one action doing an activity. And all of this is to pursue its goals. And um, the game itself expands on the different properties various assets and strongholds can have and how they relate to the PCs and so on. And the only thing I feel is missing is how the machinations of the various cults are reflected in the world around. Because what you want, if you've got all these secret societies doing things, you really want them to to actually be visible in the world and reflected in the world. And going back to the example of Dishonored, um, the more terrible things you do, that is actually reflected in, in the world with more rats, more plague, uh, more military on the streets, more, more civilians freaking out. All right, so that's all I have really to say about the role-playing bit and commentary. I want to end this episode by talking about a couple of additional sources that you could look for. Rats and Goggles has a pretty great bibliography. Uh, it's clear that Mary Gentle did a lot of research for it. I've only got a couple of the texts that she references. One of those is Francis Yates, The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age. It's more about philosophers than philosophy, uh, but it's it's good for thinking about the sorts of people who became magicians. And, and I think that's way more interesting than the magic itself is what put people on that path and motivated them and what did they think. I've got some Crowley and some Agrippa, uh, neither of which are referenced by uh, Mary Gentle, but they are sort of useful for hermetic magic. The Agrippa in particular, I think it's Agrippa and also John Dee and a few others were quite keen on the Babylonian 36 gods, the Deccans, um, set up. Just the idea that there are 36 gods that make all of creation and uh, they, they form a divine pattern. Um, and I think you can probably find Agrippa's stuff online somewhere. I think I know I did. 
What I would say though is that if I were going to represent magic in a game, and, and indeed I have, I'm much more likely to reach for sources of fiction. Um, Clive Barker for modern urban magic in particular, uh, just because I think the way that it is um, drawn and expressed is, is quite marvellous. But then for role-playing sources, um, a couple of sort of things that are role-playing adjacent. One is Isaac Bonewit's Authentic Thaumaturgy. I think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Um, it's not the last word on Enochian magic by any means. I mean, he, this guy was a witch and a druid, I think, rather than a hermetic philosopher. Um, but it's great to read. It's a really good starting point for RPG magic. Um, and my edition is a second printing published in 1998 and actually gifted to me by my mate Tim in 1999 for my 27th birthday. That was nice. Um, it's laid out a lot like a GURPS book, so you know that it's going to be easy to read. There is an attention to detail I really dig with GURPS in that uh, things are they're, they're chock full of content and they're also well laid out and logically presented, so that's pretty good. And it basically focuses a lot on answering some of the questions raised by role-playing magic systems. And there are some really good passages on where magic comes from, which are wholly compatible with any game system you like, really. Um, you know, things like psychic powers, uh, natural energies, that sort of thing. Um, I'm less excited when it gets to the formulae, because this seems to be you know, replacing one spell system with a different more complicated one and i don't really see the point of that um i am all for a bit of authenticity but there comes a point where you have to decide how much effort you're going to put into modeling a thing um and uh, what the return on that investment will be now i've been i've been fighting with swords and teaching people to fight with swords for about 20 years and this has not led to me to the conclusion that RPG combat should be more involved and detailed, but actually to the opposite, that you know, you're never going to get a more accurate model than um, two dice rolls, one against the other, whoever gets the highest is the winner. That's not to say you can't make an entertaining sword-fighting role-playing game that feels like it's authentic within a, a narrow set of rules. Um, so... Uh, Lace and Steel, I think, does Rapier really well, for example. Um, and, uh, and I can see how the Riddle of Steel sort of does medieval stuff well, although I don't fully understand it. But um, I can't remember the guy's name who uh, was one of John Clement's students back in the day, and he produced the Riddle of Steel. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he was a medievalist, so, so he knew what he was talking about. Um, Burning Wheel, on the other hand, is awful. Uh, and Luke Crane does not know what he's talking about. Um, so that's one to avoid. But anyway, I digress. There, there are some standout bits in Authentic Thaumaturgy, um, and they're mostly to do with the how of magic rather than the uh, rather than the, the, the magical effects themselves. Uh, specifically, there's a couple of things. One is the laws. So there's this, this section that Bonewitz goes into about laws, some of which are reproduced elsewhere. Um, John Sneed's Lieber Carr, mentions some of the laws uh you know, things like the the law laws of correspondence other things i think bonewitz has extrapolated himself but it's really good it includes things like the you know the law of synchronicity you know things two things happening at the same time um are they connected the law of correspondence between two things um laws of chaos um or a, a law of perversity i think is one of it. it's a murphy's law um supposedly you know if things can go bad they will or something like that um and that, that's quite a fun read because it also gives examples of how they manifest and, and it's it's quite short, but it's it's the best chapter in the book in my view. The other bits I like are the ways that humans interact with the divine. And by divine, I don't just mean gods. I mean the spirits above humanity or outside of incarnation that the magicians are trying to access. You know, magicians should be spiritual characters because they they believe in a world beyond our own and the problem is that D, &D of course equates um clerics with gods and magic in a, in a very um in a very transactionary way uh, and it, and of course magicians they have no spirituality as written they, they are simply machines that churn out magical effects and we know that people are more than that um 
I think that you know, reading a book like Authentic Thermaturgy, you know, it just gives your magicians a bit more depth. Um, I think Bowmitz was a witch rather than a hermetic scholar, um, so he did leave it. He didn't actually cover any of the numerology stuff, but that's okay. This is this is still a book that's that's worth reading for the GM and player just to get into the, the magician's headspace. Um, and it, most importantly, I think it prompts the same sorts of questions that uh, are answered in RuneQuest 3 for the um, the shaman, the priestess, and the sorcerer. Their reasons for why the world is the way it is. I briefly want to mention the game Nephilim. In particular, it's got one supplement called Libakar, which is supposedly for authentic Western ceremonial sorcery. Um, now, I, I did actually expect more than I got out of this book. Nephilim is really irritating in some ways because it's got this habit of retconning the main rule book and, and replacing uh, bits of the rules in the main rule book with other stuff that they later thought of. So the Chronicle of Awakenings, for example, is an alternative way of doing character generation. Not actually that much better, just different. You know, why do that? Um, quite furious, quite infuriating and you could get by without using Libra car uh, but there is there is some stuff on the laws in there uh, much less expansive than authentic thaumaturgy but it's still there so um, it's, it's it's worth a read the most annoying thing about nephilim is generally that it does this annoying 90s thing of being narrated to you by a character who likes to put in lots of verbal flourishes uh, and is therefore extremely frustrating if you're just trying to get to the facts and the point that they're trying to make and they're just beating around the bush which is what a lot of 90s authors did to pad out their modules and, and supplements as splat books so Liebercard does at least make some good noises in the direction of its, its bibliography it mentions Agrippa and, and a few other occult scholars um, and, um, and so you know that that's okay but I, I actually like Kenneth Height's Major Arcana a bit better um mainly for the illusions of the hermetic magical habits of each of the subgroups. It's a, this is a book about um, occult uh, secret societies, four-player characters, so they can align themselves to one of the 22 major arcana. It's quite cute. It's got a great bibliography, um, and mostly non-fiction, uh, some of which I read. Um, very short uh, fiction part of that, but it does reference both Tim Power's Last Call and Grant Morrison's The Invisible. So, you know, two thumbs up for that. There's a lot I wanted to like more about Nephilim than I actually do. Uh, about sort of the, th the things I most like about Nephilim are the magic and the, ne the metamorphoses. Um, but it's um, but a lot of the writing I find fairly aimless and overly wordy and generally not good for getting into a game. Uh, you have to actually do quite a bit of work to understand it. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't seek it out as a priority, but if you've found a copy, then you know, go for it. Okay, I just want to say some final things about civilised magic. Now, this talk has made me think about the difference between civilised magic and wild magic. So, as I mentioned before, RuneQuest does this really well. You know, Sorcery tends to be this sort of atheistic civilised magic of the individual. Divine magic is all about organisations who worship a god, um, and that's that's their appreciation of magic and that sort of thing. In the context of rats and gargles and, and a similar uh, magical city, we're talking about urban magic, which, which kind of works with the city in that you get pockets of wild spaces in a city you know, where, where magic gets stronger and reality gets weirder in some spaces. Now, let's say you have a, a common source of all magic, um, sorcery, divine magic, spirit magic, it's actually all the same thing. It's the people who practice this magic that differentiate it between what we call civilised and primitive. Now, we're using these terms civilised and primitive. I actually think we need different terms here. When we're talking about civilised magic, we're actually talking about constraints on magic, constraining it to, you know, ropes and, and geometry and architecture and ritual and 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 uh, mathematics and numbers and whatever. So it's not to say that civilised magic is better, it's just more constrained. Kind of in the way that, um, you know, the difference between an electrical substation and a bolt of lightning. You know, they both have a lot of energy. Um, 
And this constraint is human. So you're, you're putting this constraint in uh, to simplify the magic, to direct it to do certain things. It's A lot of it is about human consumption and human purposes. But however much the humans know about ritual, you know, sacred geometry and call themselves magicians, perhaps they don't have the complete picture. They know enough to harness magic. Let's say that most spaces in the city are relatively safe, right? Magic is predictable. But there are places in your city which are closer to divinity. You know, the, the fane, for example. And this is where there are fewer degrees of separation between what humans call magic and what magic actually is. And in going into the wild spaces, you're actually getting closer to the source and you're, you're, you're getting closer to sort of wild, untapped magic, which you, know, you instead of constraining it in certain forms, you, you, you shape it like putty. But going into these spaces should be really dangerous. An encounter with one of the Deccans in the Fane should leave the immortal with the equivalent of, you know, psychic radiation poisoning. Uh, you know, minds and bodies falling apart from the proximity of unalloyed magicka. So, civilised magic isn't better, but it is a lot safer. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Please like, share and subscribe. Music for this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie.